Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm your host, Dave McRae, from the University of Melbourne's Asia Institute. And with Indonesia's five yearly elections now just over a month away, Talking Indonesia will be switching to a weekly format until after polling day on 17 April to cover the key themes, important groups, and pivotal developments that will shape the outcome. For the first of our pre-election episodes, I'm joined today by Professor Michelle Ford, Director of the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney, and a leading expert on the labour movement in Asia, to discuss labour and politics in Indonesia. Unlike in many other countries, no Labour Party or party of the left represents Indonesia's working class in Parliament, increasing the challenge for Indonesia's labour movement to secure favourable outcomes for workers. Michelle, thanks so much for joining us today. It's great to be here. A pleasure to have you on the podcast. And could I start by asking you just for something of a snapshot of the labour movement as it exists in Indonesia today? How many labour unions are we talking about? How long have they existed and how many workers do they represent? Okay, we're talking about 11 confederations, about 50 unaffiliated federations at the national level and thousands of smaller regional and plant level unions. Most of these are very new because under the Suharto regime, organising was restricted and there was one official union in place. And I mean, how big a workforce would they be representing? Are, Are most workers in Indonesia union members? Oh, not at all. Uh, We have to remember that in Indonesia, most people work in the informal sector, which is traditionally non-unionised. So union membership, which is pretty rubbery, is about 3% of all workers in employment and about 6.5% of the workers in the formal sector. But of course, there are much higher levels of union membership in sectors like manufacturing. Sure, sure. And when you say, I think there were 11 key confederations, are they roughly organised by sector you know, manufacturing and the like, or or what divides the different unions? Okay, the way that confederations work is they are umbrella organisations for federations, which are generally sectoral. Uh, So you have about four main ones, and each of those would have a number of federations ranging from about 11, 9 or 11 to 15, which actually cover workers in particular industries. And I mean, how big is the challenge for these various unions when it comes to workers' rights in Indonesia? How well are they protected at present? It is quite a challenge. I mean, in formal terms, the legislation in Indonesia is quite pro-worker. But of course, like so much legislation in Indonesia, it's a matter of implementation. So there is a real question of rule of law in the industrial relations field, particularly at the company level, but also even at the central level where the law says the government should do one thing, but of course it does quite another. A second challenge would be freedom to organise. Again, although since 98, Indonesia has had a strong formal commitment to freedom of association and freedom to organise. In practice, many unions still face union-busting measures, whether it be within firms or from the national security apparatus when they protest on the street. I guess a third one would be minimum wages, which has been a very major focus for most of the union movement's activities in the post-Sahado period. They've had a lot of success here, but that success has attracted quite a lot of attention, not just from employers, but also from the state. And what we've seen in the last few years there has been a real return to a more of a security approach towards labour protests and labour organising. 
And I guess the final one would be workplace bargaining, which has been always weak in Indonesia and continues to be weak. Okay, so on the, I mean, on those key issues, enforcement of law, right to organise, minimum wage and workplace bargaining, are we seeing the different confederations largely going their own way or do they cooperate quite closely in advocating for better outcomes on, on each of those issues? In principle, they pretty much agree. These are issues that are felt across the spectrum of the union movement, though unions' individual commitment to workplace bargaining varies quite a lot. The main difference, though, is in terms of strategy. So some unions have much been much more militant in pursuing freedom to organise rule of law and minimum wages, while others have relied more on traditional relationships with key players in the bureaucracy to help them navigate those issues. Okay. And I mean, if we look at the last couple of decades of union organising, could you say one or the other strategy has been more effective or is it varied in time and place? Oh, no, there's a very clear indication that mass mobilisation has been their most effective tool. Because workplace bargaining is weak, most unions have gone to the streets, as indeed the alternative unions of the Sahado period did, to demand that the government fulfil its obligations or to demand increases in the minimum wage or to contest particular cases where freedom to organise has um, not been upheld. The other major strategy in recent times has actually been to engage in electoral politics. And this is very new for the union movement because, of course, under the Sahato regime, they were told that they had to be completely economic, that there was no role for unions in the political sphere. We'll certainly get into that political sphere in just a second, but if we could go back to this tactic of of mobilising. I mean, what sort of size of crowds are unions able to mobilise? Are there sort of some landmark campaigns where we've seen them achieve great advances through that mobilisation strategy? Yeah, we're talking about groups up to hundreds of thousands sometimes, Mm. often smaller, but sometimes very seriously impeding the ability of other people to go about their business, which of course is part of the main tactic. So some of the landmark cases in the period between 2012 and 2014, we saw a lot of huge rises in the minimum wage, sometimes up to 50%. And these were very much driven by the capacity of key unions to get members onto the street, demanding those wages, targeting local parliaments, targeting local officials. And also in areas like social security, the union movement played a really important role in the passing of the social security law as well. So I think minimum wages, social security would be the two that you could point to that there was a clear and indisputable role for the labour movement in achieving those goals and achieving them through mass mobilisation. I guess if mass mobilisation has been the most effective tactic the union movement has had at its disposal, what has it been that's motivated them to to look towards electoral politics as well? In a way, it's grown out of that experience and the fact that mass mobilisation has a lot of costs, both economic and in terms of people's time and effort and the risk of going to prison and all those other risks that come with mass mobilisation. So, in effect, key unions started to think about whether there were other ways that they could achieve their policy goals. And at the same time, after the 2004 election, parties started approaching the unions, asking them to barter policy advances, pro-worker policy, for union support in the elections. So it was both a push and a pull factor situation, I think. How has that worked in practice? I mean, we know there's no Labour Party in Indonesia. So so what has been the pathway into politics for unions? Okay, there have been two distinct pathways. The first of which has been to engage with candidates for district head positions or mayoral positions. And of course, these positions are very important in the industrial relations 
sense because they are the people who have to sign off on the minimum wages. Uh, So what would happen is unions would work alone or together to put pressure or to bargain with a candidate, preferably an incumbent. And if the period of the wage negotiation cycle coincided with the period of the electoral cycle, they actually achieved some very big wage rises through that process. So that's the first mechanism. In addition to that, and also targeting governors in the same way, they started to think through these party approaches about running their own candidates. So we had a history where unionists would run for political parties but not have institutional sanction. And what really changed in this period is some key unions started to think, well, rather than having those members use the institutional capital for their own benefits, it would be better to have, or for the party's benefit, it would be better to have an institutional strategy from the union to actually use that opportunity to push a labour agenda. Does that strategy involve picking a particular party to partner with or or what are the elements of it? As you said, um, one of the distinctive things about Indonesia is the lack of a left or a Labour Party. There were attempts to establish one in the early post-Sahado period, but more recently there's been more of this strategy of working with particular parties. I think it's very important to say here that no union has worked with a single party except for one splinter from the state old state union, which is associated with PDIP. The other unions have worked very much with a range of parties and their decisions have really been about which parties want to accommodate them, which ones want to charge them, which ones will give them good positions on the ticket and what they'll commit to in terms of labour policy. I mean, how much success have they had in partnering with the various political parties on those terms? Are we seeing uh, significant numbers of union candidates being elected? I think, again, we have to distinguish between the executive races and the legislative races. Where unions have supported particular candidates in the executive races, there are a number of case studies in in union intense districts, because they're the only ones where this matters, where candidates have committed to doing very clear things for Labor, such as putting pressure on the local manpower office to um, enforce the law better or improving minimum wages that they've made those commitments and they've followed through once they're elected. In terms of the legislative races, it's been much more complicated because often these these agreements are negotiated at the central level, sometimes at the local level. But of course, the rusted on party cadres are not very happy about the Labor people being parachuted in. So we had some formal political contracts, for example, with PKS in the 2009 election where party officials told us in our research that, yeah, they accommodated them because, of course, they had to, but they weren't keen about it. So they didn't really work very hard to make those campaigns a success. So because of those complications, but also because trade unionists tend to assume that the people who followed them industrially, who supported them, who were very strong advocates for labour rights through the union, didn't necessarily vote on the union line, even if they had kind of indicated that they would. So you have this situation where there are lots of potential candidates from unions who get endorsement from a party, go to their membership, and then of course it gets more complicated. Those members may have other political alignments, they may not want to vote at all, and they may believe in fact that unions' position is not informal politics, and so therefore not engage in this way. When you describe it like that, it actually sounds a lot like the broader civil society movement in Indonesia, where you had various prominent NGO candidates running for parliament, assuming that communities that they'd advocated on behalf of would vote for them. 
but then finding out that they got very few votes and there's only been very limited success in them getting into sort of both local and national parliaments. Is it in fact a, a fairly similar case between the union movement and those civil society activists or, or are there quite significant differences? I think you've made a fair comment, but at the other side, I think there are very significant differences. Unions are very large mass organisations. I mean, the only comparable organisations would be the large religious organisations. So if you compare it to, say, a civil society activist from a grassroots NGO or even a national NGO, the structures of the union and the scope of the union means that if an institutional decision is made to support a candidate, then they've potentially got a lot more backing. I guess where it has fallen down is that unions are very naive in political terms. I've learned a lot over the last decade or so, but they're still learning how to navigate the political sphere. And of course, where people have been elected on party tickets, but as union candidates, once they get into the legislature, they also face the problem that they're the single or one of a very small number of candidates who are actually interested in this agenda. So that has a feedback effect where unions members who have voted for them can be quite disappointed if that candidate is then pressured to follow the party line rather than the union line. So yes, there are similarities, but I think given the size and the the nature of unions, it's, it's also a very particular thing. Why in fact don't you have a specific Labour Party or, or party of the left for unions and the working class in Indonesia? And I mean, if we look comparatively, should we be surprised that we haven't seen a party like that formed over, over the past couple of decades? If we look comparatively within Southeast Asia, we shouldn't be surprised because none of the other countries of Southeast Asia have such a party, with maybe the exception of the Philippines. But more broadly, yes, we should be surprised. It's quite unusual. And as listeners would know, in Europe, but also in Latin America, it's a very entrenched pattern to have a Labour or Social Democratic Party that has relationships with unions, whether it be like Australia, where the unions fund the party, or whether it be like America, where there's a broader understanding of support without such a close link. In the Indonesian context, I guess the main thing is that we had unions that were very politically engaged in the 40s, 50s and 60s. And with the advent of the Suharto regime, they were really destroyed and quite consciously so. There were some some social democratic unions left at that time, but then they were rolled into this official union we've been talking about in 1973. And as I said before, that union was very much positioned as an economic tool of development, but definitely an economic organisation representing its members' economic interests and really forbidden from engaging in politics. So you've got that history of that lack of engagement. And then on top of that, you've got a situation where the regulations in Indonesia about forming a new party and registering it and then the electoral thresholds really place a barrier for the formation of a Labour Party. And some of the key aspects here are the requirements for national representation. So as we know, there are very few areas where there's a lot of manufacturing or other formal sector work that is unionised. And so a a party could be viable in those areas, but it's not going to be viable in the forests in Kalimantan or in a tourist sector in Bali and so on, where, where there are, well, the tourist sector, there are unions, but they're much smaller and less militant. So the particular geography, I think, of the labour movement in Indonesia has a lot to account for in terms of this difficulty, given that the regulations require national engagement. So there have been a number of opportunities 
attempts to form a Labour Party. Straight after the fall of Suharto, there were three or four from all-star Labour activists who'd gone into the state union and sort of sat quietly for the 30-odd years and now were reinserting what they believed was the actual role of unions. The most important of these was one started by Mukta Pahan, who had headed one of the more successful uh, alternative unions of the Sahado period. So these are unions that couldn't register but kept pushing for registration. I guess PRD, which was the leftist party that also emerged in that period, imagined itself as representing the working class, but of course it didn't make it through the 1990 election, 1999 election and so couldn't contest again. And it didn't have the support of the unions beyond a very small group. I guess on the other hand then, if, if there are these barriers to forming a party because their membership is locally concentrated, whereas parties need to be national and there are divisions even where there are a lot of union members. I mean, there are, there are plenty of other parties in Indonesia that struggle to get over that electoral threshold of previously 3.5%, now 4% to be in parliament. Why haven't we seen really concerted efforts from, say, a struggling party in Indonesia to redefine itself as a working class party and, and try to embrace the unions and, and others to, to bolster its vote? Well, I mean, that's a very good question. And I think it speaks to the broader lack of programmatic politics in Indonesia. That said, there have been some parties that have attempted this. And I think sometimes people might be a bit surprised at which parties they were. So the first party to seriously engage on this front was actually PKS, which, as we know, is an Islamist party. And PKS entered formal arrangements with two unions in the 2009 election and ran several of their candidates in different electoral districts. The other party that has become more engaged since that time and is going to be particularly important in terms of the 2019 campaign is Prabowo Subianto's party, Gurindra. And the involvement of Gurindra with Labor is quite interesting because at first the unions that they have courted rejected them. They're quite concerned and worried about their platform. But over time, particularly through the engagement of the head of one of the confederations with Prabowo, Gurindra has come to be the party of choice for a lot of union candidates from that particular confederation. There's some history here that our listeners might be interested in. You might remember before that I was talking about how unions engage with local electoral contests, executive contests, and also provincial contests. And in 2012, they actually supported Jokowi in the race for governor. And as part of that, as they had elsewhere, they made a deal where Jokowi promised to support a certain level of wage rises. Now, once in office, he didn't do so. And that betrayal really explains in large part, why they looked to Prabowo at that stage. And unlike Jokowi, Prabowo was prepared to sign a long list, sign on to a long list of Labour-oriented demands, and to really spend a lot of time courting key Labour leaders, both in terms of gaining presidential support and then through this secondary strategy through Gurindra. Is this something that's only starting for the 2019 elections in terms of Prabowo and Gurindra courting the unions, or was this even back in 2014? Well, the first time Prabowo tried to court the unions was in 2009, when mm. he was running as vice presidential candidate with Megawati. And at that stage, the two unions he approached rejected the overtures. But as after the 2012 election in Jakarta, where they'd supported Jokowi and then it hadn't worked out, then there was much more openness within that particular confederation, which is Indonesia's best performing confederation, towards working with Prabowo. So what we see in 2014 is not so much engagement 
between Gurindra and the unions for the electoral race. Um, there was still some PKS, but also from parties ranging from PDIP to almost all the major parties had Labor candidates in that election. But in the presidential race, this particular confederation came out very strongly for Prabhu. And in areas where its members are strongest, we've done some analysis of the electoral results and there's a clear bump for Prabhu as a result of that campaigning. So I guess on the back of that, Prabhu has decided that Labor is a good partner and has pushed forward with planning for the next electoral uh, races. And when you say a clear bump, what sort of percentage are we are we talking about? In an area that, I mean, supported Prabowo as a whole, but is a PDIP stronghold, 20 to 30% according to our survey data. So this, obviously, we can't tell the overall, overall what workers did, but in, we did a survey of several hundred workers from a number of different unions. And in that electorate, particularly members of that union that supported Prabowo, their votes for Prabowo were far higher than the average in those electoral districts. So I guess how significant asset would you see for Prabowo and Garindra having this union support heading into 2019? Well, clearly it's benefits only there in areas where unions are dense, right? So we're talking about maybe 10 areas across Indonesia. Uh, we looked at five of those for a big project I've been doing with Terry Carraway. But within those areas, it's, it's a clear benefit if the unions mobilise. And I mean, that is the big if, right? In 2014, we saw them mobilise, we saw a clear bump. It will depend on the capacity of the unions to mobilise again this time round. And I think conditions have changed. They don't have as much momentum as they did leading into that period off those big wage rises of 2013, 2014. And when you talk about 10 areas, those would mostly be in Java and Sumatra? Yes, that's true. Pretty so, much all in Java and Sumatra. Okay, yeah. so the sort of densely populated quite mm. significant electoral constituencies yeah. then. So I guess from that perspective, really, the potential influence of Labor electorally is much stronger at the local level in those areas of union density, high union density, than nationally. But I think what surprised us as Labor researchers is just how much attention they were given by candidates in 2014. And Jokowi also amassed his own union support team at that time but also then how much impact where unions seriously campaigned it had on on support for their preferred candidate. That actually leads very nicely in the next thing I was going to ask you was if you think about Islamic or Islamist constituency in Indonesia, we'd say since the very large scale Islamist mobilisation against then Jakarta Governor Ahok back in 2016-2017, you've seen a real effort from Jokowi to embrace that, I guess, Muslim community in the vice presidential candidate he's ended up with in various approaches to religious clerics and so on and so forth. If unions are disillusioned with Jokowi because of his broken promises as Jakarta governor, have we seen a similar effort leading into 2019 of any sort from his camp to try to bring the union movement or workers back into the fold? Certainly, Jokowi has been courting the head of one of the major confederations, who is a PDIP cadre, and that confederation head has reinvigorated a network called the Worker Friends of Jokowi, which was established in the last election, but didn't have that much impact. I guess the big question is whether that particular confederation can mobilise members in the same way as the confederation that supports Prabowo. 
And I mean, when you say that Proboa has been willing to sign up to a long list of union demands, what sort of things are on that list and how far are they from the current situation? There's a the whole bunch of things, both directly in terms of ensuring living wages, but also broader concerns that are often concerns of a social democratic party or of the left, such as accessible housing, accessible transport, education, those sorts of gen- more general policy issues of concern to workers. I mean, of course, the open question is, and I think many of us would think we know the answer, even if he was elected, would he actually up- fulfil these promises? But clearly, at least some key union members and leaders think that there's a chance that he would do so. So, I mean, you know, if at least hypothetically a Proboa presidency, if he stuck to those demands, would would bring a better situation for workers. What if we return to party politics and if we imagined a scenario where the union movement did get a viable sort of Labour Party off the ground in Indonesia? Do you think that would actually significantly improve outcomes for workers in Indonesia? I think the thinking even within the labour movement at this stage is that a worker-only party is unlikely to be able to do very much in a country where so few people are employed in formal sector occupations. So the movement over the last few years has been more towards an attempt to get a social movement party going where a party would represent the general concerns of progressive politics in ways that included the labour agenda and maybe had unions at its core in terms of its institutional supporters. I mean, long term, if it could be done, that is a more realistic strategy, I think, in Indonesia. So a social democratic party, a party of soft left progressive politics rather than a Labour Party per se is probably more realistic. But I still think there's a lot of barriers given the structure of Indonesia's system to achieving that in a way that makes unions feel that they are fully represented and their voices heard. I guess when you're when you're talking about that organised workers in the formal sector are, are fairly small compared to informal workers, are the interests of those two groups so divergent that it would make it difficult to unite them in a, in a single, I guess, social democratic party? They share some very important common interests. And I think one of the interesting debates around this was the debate that happened between unions when these key unions decided to support a version of social security that was in, was universal rather than just focusing on workers in the formal sector. And the debates at that time within the movement were that question of universalism and the benefits to workers who actually move in and out of formal sector occupations in Indonesia quite a lot as well, versus perhaps the, the greater leverage that unions, some unions saw in having a policy that targeted was more directly targeted to formal sector workers. So I think in general terms, there are many common interest areas, interest areas like education, like housing, like accessible transport, like social safety nets more generally, that could easily be, be used as a common platform for social movement politics. Then, of course, there'll always be particular issues that relate to the industrial working class who are more privileged than many of those other groups. And I guess it's a matter for a party if they were trying to access the worker vote the formal sector worker vote of having some elements in their platform that spoke to those specific interests like minimum wages, as well as to the more general issues of social security and social welfare. I mean, I guess, though, when you say that supporting local candidates has been a fairly effective strategy for unions in in gaining some of their demands. You have at least one of the presidential candidates who's been willing to sign on to their demands as well. Would forging that type of broad alliance be worth the effort in in terms of the payoff it would bring in outcomes for workers? 
The unions tried fairly hard in the lead up to 219 and they've put it on the back burner for they think probably a decade or more now. So I think it does take a lot of concerted effort and getting a shared understanding of what the goals of such an endeavour would be and how to pursue them is I think something that's still relatively difficult. And yeah, I think they've decided for now at least, far too hard. And, and what would change in a decade that would make that sort of party more, more possible? I think within the unions, they would hope to have uh, stronger internal structures to support political engagement, more experience of the political sphere. So I think it's more what they imagine they could improve internally that would maybe make that more possible. And I mean, finally, if you were to pick one particular area of the country, one particular candidate to watch in this 2019 elections that might be quite informative of, of the success unions have. Is, is, is there a particular area or a person or party you'd point people to focus on? I think the area in which these things are most dynamic is Bakasi, um, industrial centre on the eastern fringe of Jakarta, which is the heartland of the Metal Workers Union, which has been a major driver of these political experiments. Uh, they got two candidates in, in 2014, union endorsed candidates and a key official ran for district head more recently and didn't do so well but certainly in terms of the internal efforts the level of um, campaigning experience it brought that was very important to the union he's running for a national seat in the 219 election and there are many candidates running for lower level seats in that district so i think that'd be the one to watch well uh, I'll, I'll certainly be keeping a close eye on that as the election unfolds over the next month. There's a lot more I'd really like to ask you today, Michelle, but I'm afraid we're well and truly out of time. Thanks so much for joining us today on Talking Indonesia. It's been great. Thanks, Dave. That was Professor Michelle Ford, Director of the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Her new book, From Migrant to Worker, The Global Unions and Labour Migration in Asia, has just been published by Cornell University Press. My colleague Dr Gemma Purdy will present the next of our weekly election episodes on Thursday 14 March. Until then, as always, you can catch up on the entire archive of Talking Indonesia episodes at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog or wherever you get your podcasts. That's all from me for today. Until next time, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Bye for now.